the topic of this, this talk, four phases of biblical counseling, the goal is to show us how God has equipped us, especially with a broad understanding of the, this, the discipleship process. This is called the four phases of counseling. It was to be uh, done yesterday and we didn't get to it. So can you find that in your book? Four phases of counseling? That's our topic right now. The Lord says that we are commissioned to make disciples. And we've been talking a lot about spiritual therapy, about exchange life counseling. Really what that is is remedial discipleship, isn't it? We get off track in the self-life and it's getting back on track so that we can keep growing. It's remedial discipleship. And then the ongoing um, process of discipleship should continue. Stoney said yesterday, sometimes it's hard to tell where counseling you know, is completed and discipleship continues. I think that's what he meant. Another topic, the uh, goal of this hour is to give you a context for this week. <clears throat> if you're like me, I remember coming to the Institute, getting all this good teaching, and I've uh, been to many conferences in my life, and you walk away from it and say, wow, you know, I learned some things, that God did some things in my life. Where does this fit into my, my whole life pilgrimage? I'd like to address that issue with you, because in our mind we have kind of a, a filing system, don't we? And if you read a good book, you think, you know, that, that book on parenting, that's really interesting. I'll put that in my parenting file, right? Or maybe you hear, hear a talk about exercise. Okay, I'll put that in the, in the physical education file. I like to um, talk about uh, spiritual therapy, about exchange life counseling in context. The Christian life, I guess I better open my nose too. Uh, the Christian life begins at what? At conversion. Begins at conversion. If we're not saved, we certainly aren't able to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. So um, it's kind of like uh, stopping at the the highway roadside, and you see that big map of the state of Tennessee or Virginia, and you see a little arrow that says "You are here." And that little red dot really helps because it gives you a perspective of where you've come from, where you're going. And I like for this talk to address that. So the Christian life begins at conversion. And continues with discipleship. The new birth, the Lord instructs Nicodemus, unless we're born again, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. So the new birth is absolutely essential. Also spiritual growth, 2 Peter 3.18 says we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Spiritual growth is vital because all living things grow. Correct? So um, we can look over in the wall there and enjoy that, that wreath and the kind of that Christmas tree lantern. But we're not going to be watering that every day. <laughs> if you came back next year, if it wasn't thrown out, it's going to be looking the same way. It looks living, but it's not actually living. On the other hand, uh, my my uh, twins brought home uh, cuttings of a, what, what kind of tree is it? An oak or something? Um, it was Arbor Day, and they all got these little pieces of a tree, little branches and roots to, to plant at home. So Stephen's saying, where are we going to plant this? <laughs> So um, when that gets planted, if it's healthy, it's going to grow. So spiritual growth is vital. Also, we see that sanctification, and we won't spend a lot of time on this but because Stoney's uh, talk was on this topic, but sanctification is the act of God whereby He sets believers apart to His holiness. And we noted, learned together, there are two aspects of it. There's positional sanctification, is how when you were born again, God set you apart for God. He set you apart for Himself. Often that term holiness can kind of sound a bit bit uh, strict or a bit old-fashioned, but you know another word for holiness is being special. Being special, being set apart. Air Force One isn't just any airplane, is it? It's set apart for the President's use. You are not just a regular person. You're set apart for the King of Kings. Positional sanctification. Also, progressive sanctification, as Tony was saying, is God's work in our soul to uh, help us perfect holiness out of reverence for God in our mind, will, emotions. Progressive sanctification. And in Hebrews chapter 10, let's look there together. The tenth chapter of Hebrews talks about both aspects of sanctification. And really, counseling has to do primarily with that second aspect, how we can grow to be in our experience where we are already are in our spirit and in our position. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. 
says, by, God's, by that will, which is God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now look at that word sanctified. What tense is that? That's past tense, right? It's a done deal. Aren't you glad? That's positional sanctification. You were set apart for God. And it's once for all. We don't need uh, a weekly sacrifice like the Mass teaches, but we have a once for all forgiveness at Calvary. And then verse 14, if you look down at verse 14, it says, For by one offering He has perfected forever those who are, literally it says, being sanctified. You might say, well, wait a minute. Verse 10 says we have been. Verse 14 says we are being sanctified. We learned through our study at the Institute that when you're born again, your spirit was sanctified. But God is in the process in your soul of making you more and more conformed to the image of His Son. And that's really where the counseling focus is, isn't it? That we would grow in our holiness. Now, um, the next page, we're not actually at that chart yet, so let me go back, lest you get too distracted. Okay, the next page... How does justification differ from sanctification? Well, uh, justification means that God declares you absolutely pardoned and righteous the moment you receive Christ as your personal Savior. Isn't that great? That means that all of your sins were washed away. It also means all the obedience of Christ, all of His righteousness, was credited to your account. That's better than having a million dollars wired to your bank account. That's the righteousness of God is credited to your account. And we have some verses that mention that. We won't go through them in detail. Um, If you review your institute notes, that would make a good Bible study. But progressive sanctification is God's work in in our soul, making us more and more conform to the image of His Son. Now, number four in your notes says, there are different theological perspectives on how the believer grows in holiness. What is the most comprehensive answer to the cry of the defeated, struggling child of God from Romans 7.24? O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We believe the Christ-centered, grace-oriented view of Christ as our life is the answer. And everyone said, Amen. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, the death of His Son, how much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His... L-I-F-E, His life. So, tremendous verse to to study and use in in our counseling. The next thing I'd like to point out is that when we come to counseling, we need to have a clear understanding of this doctrine of sanctification because it's going to be foundational to identifying what the problem is and what the answer is. Now, if people don't agree on what the problem is, (laughs) then they're not going to be anywhere uh, near the right answer as to what the solution is. Listen to this quotation from a secular textbook on counseling. The fellow says, It is my conviction that our views of human nature and the basic assumptions that undergird our views of the therapeutic process have significant implications for the way we develop our therapeutic practices. I am also persuaded that because they do not pay sufficient attention to the philosophical assumptions, many practitioners operate as though they had no set of assumptions regarding their clients. In my opinion, a central task, that's what we're doing this week, a central task is to make our assumptions explicit and conscious so that we can establish some consistency between our beliefs about human nature and the way we implement our procedures in counseling or therapy. Interesting coming from a secular writer. So he says we have to understand what the problem is, what the answer is, we need to have an understanding of human nature before we have a strategy to fix it, right? There's a book called uh, The Four Views of Sanctification. And uh, in, that, in that book, Ro- uh, J. Robertson McQuilkin from Columbia, how is it called? University? Biblical University is it called? In South Carolina. Um, writes the view called Keswick. K-E-S-W-I-C-K. The Keswick View. Keswick was a, a conference in England for many, many years where these truths that we've been studying were, uh, were taught and uh, celebrated and books written about the deeper life came from what's called the Keswick Movement. There's an America's Keswick, I think it's in New Jersey. So if you hear about the Keswick teaching or movement, that's what we're talking about. 
And so uh, McCulkin does an excellent job, although I haven't read the book yet. Um, uh, we have good reports about how that book is raising people's awareness of the view of sanctification you're hearing this week. So at least it's mainstream, it's on the table, and uh, as I read the responses to McQuilkin's article, they were polite and respectful, including uh, um, the uh, Chancellor of Dallas Seminary didn't really have anything negative to say about the Keswick view except for slight different emphasis. So that's, that's a good sign. How do the various approaches to counseling reflect their basic assumptions? Next page. How should our discipling perspective affect our approach to biblical counseling? An outline of the Book of Romans points to four stages or phases in the process of experiencing and expressing the righteousness of God. And before we go there, let me just back up and, and mention how this came together in my life. After going to the Institute in 1996 and using Handbook to Happiness for many years, uh, my own life and life of others, uh, we were blessed to have that teaching. But as I said, I was looking for a way to put it in context in my filing system. In seminary, I studied J. Adams' materials, the Nuthetic Counseling Model, which emphasizes using the Bible to address problem, emphasizing mostly putting off bad behavior and putting off good behavior. And I knew that was you know, filled with Scripture and, and uh, uh, had a lot of good information. So I'm saying, how does this fit together? Also, um, I attended a Neil Anderson conference in Toronto, heard his teaching that sounded familiar in terms of resolving spiritual conflicts, personal conflicts. And then he got into the material about revo- resolving spiritual conflicts and freedom in Christ and tearing down strongholds. I read his book called Release from Bondage. And he gives a, a number of testimonies of people whose lives were absolutely in, in shackles, in chains, spiritually. And then through appropriating the victory that is ours in Christ, their lives were set free. And I read that book, and I was really encouraged because I thought, God has really given us everything we need for life and godliness. And even though I didn't write the book, yeah, it's true, it's, God is using it, so I think we always need to keep a teachable attitude Sometimes we think, oh, I've learned so much. What is there else to learn? But when we consider how, how vast the universe is and how awesome God is, we should never think that we've, we've arrived. We should always be teachable. Then I attended Bill Gothard's seminar, and he started to go through this material about tearing down strongholds. So I started using it in counseling. God blessed it. I saw its real advantage in, in my life and other people's lives. So, okay, well, where does that fit in? Um, and then what about the other discipleship materials that I've used from Navigators and Campus Crusade? And so I was thinking, well, we know salvation is important. If, if someone isn't saved, then we can't help them beyond that. They need Christ as our Savior. And we know that we need to understand the exchange life. That's what, what um, changes us from being a selfer to, to someone who's abiding in the vine. We need freedom in Christ. But I know even with freedom doesn't mean we've arrived. We have to keep growing. Then I was looking at the book of Romans and I realized, wait a minute, the book of Romans covers each of these in sequence and uh, gives us what I would like to describe as the four phases of biblical counseling. The theme of Romans is, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That verse says that we have God's gift of righteousness by faith and we also experience it in our life by faith. It's by faith from first to last. So that's what we've been hearing. It's not by our own effort. It's by faith in Christ living through us. Look at this little outline. Chapters 1 to 5, how God imputes His righteousness. He credits it to your account. And uh, chapter 6 to 8, which we uh, have been studying and will study more today, how God imparts His righteousness through Christ living in and through us, the exchange life. Let's jump down to chapter 12 to 16, how God's righteousness is to be practically expressed. Remember what uh, Phil Jones was saying yesterday, how New Testament epistles start with doctrine, right? And then they go on to practical living. And that's a very important distinction. Romans is the same way. Chapter 1 to 11, mostly doctrine. Chapter 12 and following, more the practical application. But then I thought, well, what about chapters 9 to 11? And then I realized, well, actually in chapters 9, 10, and 11, a stronghold is being torn down. Let me show you that. Turn with me to Romans chapter 9. 
By tearing down a stronghold, we mean that if someone has a false belief, if they bought into a lie, then they're going to be robbed of freedom and uh, the potential for continued growth. What was the, the uh, theological dilemma that some of these readers were facing? Well, Paul was writing to Rome. He hadn't been there yet. And he's presenting the Gospel. And in the Gospel, he's saying that um, it's not an issue whether you're a Jew or Gentile. Jesus is the Messiah. He came, He died, and rose again. It's not by keeping the law of Moses. It's by grace through faith that you're saved. And when you're saved, you become part of God's chosen people. And he goes through all the wonderful passages and principles. And then he comes to chapter 9, and he says, I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. Remember that song, To Dream the Impossible Dream, which talks about to march into hell for a heavenly cause? God, through Paul, through Christ and Paul, had that, that same burden. It says, If I could be accursed from Christ to save my countrymen, I would do it. Then he says, These are the Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and of whom according to the flesh Jesus came, Christ came, Messiah, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Here's the theological dilemma, verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. In other words, people are saying, wait a minute, Paul. How can you say that Jesus is the Messiah if most of the natural children of Israel have rejected Him. I mean, He's the Jewish Messiah. And although most early believers were Jewish, when you consider the whole nation, as a nation, they rejected them, right? John chapter 1, He came unto His own, His own received Him not. He said, how could this be? They're also saying, how can God now be raising up a people for His name who are mostly Gentiles, to have a new covenant when God had covenant promises to Abraham. We're the special ones, you know. Is God unfaithful? Here's the bottom line. If the gospel is true, Paul, the way you're saying it, then God must be unfaithful because the Jewish people are the chosen people. See the dilemma? That stronghold had to be torn down before he could go on to chapter 12, what we call chapter 12, verse 1. So in chapter 9, he says, not all people who are of Israel are of Israel. Now, what do you mean, Paul? He's saying, well, even in the Old Testament, it's not just being a physical descendant of Abraham that made someone saved. They certainly had an advantage because they had the Word of God and they had the the sacrificial system, but it was always by grace through faith that people were saved. In the Old Testament, the, the sacrifice was a picture of the coming of Messiah. They would look ahead in faith to the coming of Jesus. It was by faith. Hebrews 11 tells us it was by faith. We look back to Calvary, don't we? And are saved by faith. But it's always by faith. So he says that only those who were believers in the Old Testament who were Jews were really God's people. And he gives examples of that in chapter 9. So he's saying it's, it's really this the heart that God is looking for. It's the heart that responds to the new covenant. So he establishes that fact. Then in chapter 10... Um, well, also in chapter 9, he talks about God's sovereignty. He is sovereign and He has chosen to make the new covenant available by grace through faith to whoever will receive it. And then chapter chapter 10, that great missionary passage about if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we shall be saved. Look down with me at chapter 10, verse 14. How shall they call upon Him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, and here again he quotes the Old Testament, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? He's talking about the Jews primarily. Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth, their words to the end of the world. 
So he goes on to talk about how the Old Testament predicts that salvation would come to the Gentiles. So chapter 9, he's saying God is sovereign. It's the spiritual believers who are the true Israel. Chapter 10, he says, the gospel has been heard by the Jewish folk, my countrymen. They are as entitled to it, even more so, than the Gentiles. And then chapter 11, he says that he uses the imagery of an olive tree, remember? And in that, in that passage, he says, let me see here. Let's start at verse 19. Chapter 11 of Romans, verse 19. You'll say then, branches were broken off that I may be grafted in. So the, the uh, picture of the olive tree is that the olive tree is a picture of God's covenant relationship with Israel the roots and so forth, the trunk. It reminds you of the patriarchs, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the giving of the law. That's like the olive tree. But when Christ came and the Pharisees even saw his miracles and they said he was doing miracles by the power of Satan and they refused to receive him and they said, even when Pilate tried to release Jesus, they said, his blood be upon us and upon our children. What a paradoxical statement. It's his blood that they need to be saved and yet, they're saying, we'll take responsibility for his death, Pilate. You know. And so the people of Israel rejected Christ. And when that happened, it's like a branch of that olive tree was broken off. So the people of Israel from that time and following who rejected their Messiah were broken off from the olive tree of salvation. And those of us here who are Gentiles are considered a wild, wild olive tree and we're grafted into that tree of salvation. So it says that the natural branches were broken off when they rejected the Messiah, we as believing Gentiles are grafted in. But he's saying in the next verse, chapter 20, or verse 20, well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. Speaking to Gentiles in general. He's saying now God isn't just favoring Gentiles. You have to personally receive Christ as Messiah. So he's saying that we need to appreciate the Jewish heritage of the people of God. Not to look down on them, but to pray for them. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Dr. Solomon was talking about the threat of Islam. Last night I was reading a letter from missionary friends of ours who were in Jerusalem. And uh, it seems like it's getting worse and worse there in terms of nations, especially the Arab nations, refusing to even give Israel the right to exist. So uh, we're definitely living in the last days, aren't we? Speaking of the last days then, in chapter 11, notice it says this um, in verse 23, they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. He's saying if, when Jewish people believe, they're grafted into their own olive tree. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off out of the olive tree, which was wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? And then it says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. So he's saying that in the last days, God will graft believing Israel back into their own olive tree. In other words, friends, in the future there will be a major revival, I believe, of Jewish folk who are going to realize that they did reject the true Messiah. And the Bible says in Zechariah chapter 10, they will look upon Him whom they pierced and mourn for Him as one mourns for an only son. There will be a great revival of the, of the Jewish folk. They're going to come and embrace Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. And we've had the privilege of seeing some first fruits of that in our ministry but it's going to be done on a grand scale. And so then Paul ends with a great doxology. So the reason we went into detail in chapters 9, 10, and 11 is I like to commend to you that what is happening here is that Paul is tearing down a stronghold of saying, if the gospel is true, God is unfaithful to Israel. He's saying, no, he's not unfaithful. He's sovereign. They've heard the gospel. And when they believe, they're going to be grafted in. And in the last days, it will happen as a whole nation. Therefore, he can go on then. Now that you know that God is, un, is not unfaithful, that He loves the Jews and they're still special to Him, all right. If, you're, if you want to help the Jewish people, he says, be like me. 
uh, embrace the new covenant and let God use your life. Now breathe a sigh of relief. Okay, we got through Romans 9, 10, and 11. So, do you agree with me? And uh, I have water here to throw at anybody who doesn't. But uh, that uh, chapters 9, 10, 11, God is tearing down a stronghold of unbelief, a theological dilemma. And then we see in chapters 12 to 16, God's righteousness is to be practically expressed. So that gives us what we call the four phases of counseling. The first chapter, salvation. 6 to 8, the abundant life. 9 to 11, freedom in Christ. 12 and following, ongoing Christian growth. Let's take a look at that. Um, this chart next. And actually, I'm going to ask you to just flip over an extra page. We'll come back to the four phases chart. Remember the, the um, that diagram from Handbook to Happiness? This is phase one, right? Crossing the Red Sea is a, is a picture of salvation. If someone comes to you, they're hurting. Job one, right, is to see them come to know Christ as Savior. Travis and I were talking this week about how most of the people that come to him are unsaved. We talked about how to how to uh, prepare the wheel and line diagrams in a different sequence. If you start, for example, with the wheel diagram with physical symptoms, and then soul, then let them ask about spirit, and you can talk about the dead spirit and then the gospel, then use the line diagram, start with Adam and the line down, and then present the gospel. You could use the gospel um, with the wheel and line. I remember in Montreal, uh, preaching an evangelistic sermon one Sunday morning, and and a couple put up their hands in the invitation. So I got their visitors' cards and went to visit them. And I just said, you know, it was so encouraging when you both raised your hands at the invitation. They looked at each other. You raised your hand too? <laughs> they didn't know that their spouse did as well. I found out that the night before, the day before, they were they gave up on their marriage. They were going to get a divorce. And they, they decided, however, on a whim to look in the newspaper. They saw People Church of Montreal ad. They said, well... What do we have to lose? Let's go to church. They did. They heard the gospel. They were saved. And God has worked mightily in their lives and, and has used them in a great way ever since. Um, so, But this was job one, is coming to, to the Lord for salvation. And then this week we've been hearing about phase two, which is crossing the Jordan River and appropriating Christ as our life. I believe that the main calling of God on, on Dr. Solomon's life is to specialize in helping people get out of the wilderness into the promised land. Would you agree? And so praise the Lord for the saving life of Christ and number of books on the back table there and on the piano. Focus on what I'm calling phase two, which is Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. It's not I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. But then, after the conference, I was thinking, well, where do I put in the Freedom of Christ material? And, and what about the J. Adams uh, Neuthetic Counseling? And So now we come back to the previous page and notice this chart with me. And yes, I like charts. I admit it. Um, so we see under, if you go down to where it says Old Testament imagery, see that? It's evangelism is helping people know Christ as Savior is crossing the Red Sea. Sharing with them the handbook to happiness is focused on helping them cross the Jordan. Then, when we share with them freedom in Christ principles about how to tear down a stronghold, it's like when they crossed the Jordan River, God had told them that the promised land was theirs. But what city was right on Main Street that they had to deal with? Jericho, right? They couldn't occupy the land with Jericho sitting right there, that walled city. And as I thought about Jericho, I said, you know, that kind of sounds like a stronghold. Yeah, it is. And so, the stronghold fell by faith. And if you'd like to do a study on this, you might read Alan Redpath's book. Alan Redpath has a book called Victorious Christian Living, which goes through Joshua with this imagery. And it's uh, been really used of God. And so, we need to identify that stronghold of Jericho. And it's called Victorious Christian Living by Redpath. So, when we take the truth of God's word and by faith renounce that lie, then God tears down those walls. Isn't that great? But you know, before they could take the land, Joshua had to fully identify himself with the captain of the Lord's host. Remember that? 
he sees this mysterious person. He says, are you for us or for our enemies? Remember what the captain of the Lord so said? I'm not taking sides. As one person said, I've not come to take sides. I've come to take over. So Joshua needed to recognize that this wasn't his battle. It was whose battle? God's battle. And he had to identify with the victor, God himself. The same God who parted the Red Sea and part of the Jordan would knock down those walled cities. And so, uh, tearing down the strongholds of Jericho is a picture of freedom in Christ. But then you remember in Joshua 1, the Lord said to Joshua, every place that the sole of your foot is going to tread, I'm going to give to you. But they had a responsibility. Yes, God would partition the land, but they needed to occupy, right? Occupy the land. Unfortunately, uh, a couple of tribes de- um, decided, you know, we're really happy on on this side of the Jordan. We don't want it to go into the Promised Land. That's sad, isn't it? They were content with being on the wrong side of the Jordan. And many others would uh, occupy their territory, but they didn't drive out the Canaanites, which is a, t- a symbol of, of uh, the self-life and, and compromise. They didn't drive them out. And so, just like God warned, they always had the pagans there, a snare on their side, with their child-sacrificing, immoral ways, their idolatry. And that really is is why Israel continually tripped up, is because they didn't fully occupy the land and fully tear down the strongholds, right? Let's walk through the chart then. Uh, The phase one is called evangelism. Phase two is the exchange life. Three, tearing down strongholds. Four, practical discipleship. What's then the focus? Well, in evangelism... The focus is conversion by Christ. If they're not converted, how can they go on to get spiritual victory? What's the obstacle? They're spiritually dead. They need spiritual life, don't they? The picture is crossing the Red Sea. Romans chapter 1-5 to gives the clear teaching on, um, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have to be delivered from sin's penalty. And an example of this ministry orientation is Luis Palau, Billy Graham, and they focus, they specialize in getting people across the Red Sea, don't they? John three sixteen to 18 But let's look at then uh, phase two. Someone comes to you, they are born again, but they're, they're uh, weighed down with, with all the problems of the self-life. So what is the second major goal? It's the exchange life, isn't it? Like Hudson Taylor's little track there that you were given. What's the focus? It's on union with Christ. That's the genius of the line diagram. Is it, it gives us a visual picture of how we are united with Christ. What's the obstacle for the exchange life? Let me get you to talk so you don't fall asleep. What's the obstacle? The self-life, right? Living independently, living in unbelief. And what chapters in Romans deals with the exchange life? 6, 7, and 8, right? We, are, we have to know the old man was crucified, we need to reckon ourselves dead to sin, alive to God. We need to yield ourselves. Romans 6, 7, and 8. We have to be delivered from what? Sin's power, right? The chains have fallen off. We need to walk in resurrection power. And can you think of anyone that might have that ministry orientation of the exchange life? Can you think of anybody that had a birthday yesterday? <laughs> so, um, Handbook to Happiness focuses on on that goal, Galatians 2.20. The third counseling goal then would be tearing down strongholds. And then uh, the focus then is freedom in Christ. Freedom in Christ. The obstacle then would be the stronghold of the false idea, the unresolved conflict. The Old Testament imagery is the walled cities in in Canaan. Chapters 9-11 in Romans correspond to that. We have to be delivered from what? sins, perception. See, if the Lord says to us in John 8.32, you shall know the truth, and what? The truth will set you free. So then, if truth sets us free, what does deception do? It binds, right? So as a believer, as someone who's even living the abiding life, if we have a lie that we're holding on to, then we're going to be robbed of freedom in that area. Neil Anderson, through this book, The Bondage Breaker, very popular book, has what in the back is called The Seven Steps to Freedom. And I call those a spiritual minesweeper. You know how in wartime sometimes the uh, the naval uh, 
defenses would put uh, mines in a harbor under underwater, and uh, that would block the harbor. If a ship went in, they'd hit that mine and blow up, and it would sink. So to clear that harbor, they would have a minesweeper that would go through that harbor, and it would have a special device that would collect those mines underwater and clear them out so then they, there could be freedom in that harbor again. So those seven categories are what I call a spiritual minesweeper, right? And there may be no minds in your life. If not, fine. You just, you just did a spiritual discipline to make sure. If it does catch one, maybe there's bitterness or maybe there's a false belief about God. If it's caught, cleared up, great, there's more freedom there. So um, the problem with uh, some of the popularity, though, of Bondage Breaker is that people get all excited about freedom in Christ, but they have forgotten what? That it has to be Christ as your victory. So if they just get the techniques over here, but they're still living out of the self-life, then they're still uh, going to be robbed of the victory that's only found in Christ. So we don't want to have also another tendency is that when people learn about this, they have a, a focus on the enemy. It's like there's a demon under every bush. you know, And that, that's not the abundant life either. The Bible says we always walk in triumph in Christ. right? So our focus has to be who? The Lord Jesus. He is the victor. Submit to God, resist the devil, he's going to flee. So as long as we have Christ as our life, he is our focus, then I believe there is a place for freedom in Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. We'll look at it in a moment, which is how to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. And then practical discipleship. Even with these things, does that mean we've arrived? No, the Bible says keep growing. Practical discipleship. The focus is on dominion through Christ. We want Christ to take dominion over every area of our life, just like in the, the, uh, the promised land. The obstacle is worldliness. The world is constantly going to try to to shift your focus, to corrupt your values, right? To bog you down. So we need to constantly be renewing our mind. The Old Testament imagery is occupy the land. Be like Caleb. Give me this mountain. <laughs> you know, if God has given it to me, I want to possess my possessions. So occupy the land. Chapter 12 and following of Romans, because of God's mercies, present yourself a living sacrifice. And fulfill those, those uh, laws of love. So we want to be delivered from every pattern of sin. Jay Adams, the Nuthetic uh, counseling material, is very useful under what I would call phase four. When someone has their identity in Christ, they're letting Christ live through them, they're free in Christ, then sure, all that putting off and putting on is very relevant because it is filled with Scripture. But what if someone isn't identified with Christ in their spiritual life, if they're not free, what if they're given all that, those do's and don'ts? See, they get very frustrated. And then if they don't have victory, the counselor blames them. Well, it's your fault. You know, you're not putting off. You know? So it's not the counselor's fault. So um, on the other hand, if we have Christ as our life, if we have freedom, fine. There's so much we can learn about how to handle our finances, about how to raise our children, how to communicate in marriage. There are a wide spectrum of things, which really we could call it discipleship. But if people are off track on it, if it's remedial, yeah, it's, you could call it counseling. So, um, any questions on those four categories? Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Okay. So, we're singing out the same sheet then. Yes, Jim. In reality, when I met Then he came back again, as the Holy Spirit started counting down all the different songs that came in my mind. 
So you're saying that your concept of God was off. That was a stronghold. And before you could fully cast yourself on Christ as your life, there would needed to be freedom in that area. Okay. Okay, Tim. So you you talk about how sometimes these things overlap, don't they? In terms of freedom, the cross. I I think I think we went through the wheel and line early on, uh, and kept revisiting it. But as Tim's a good reader, so I kept giving him these good books, Watchman Nee and everything. And keep reading it, and the light kept getting brighter and brighter. So, but the freedom of Christ was very important, and we learned together through some of those experiences. Um, it's so encouraging to know that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. That is so encouraging. Um, this kind of gives us a, a map. We say, okay, this is this is God's provision. This is this is the big picture. So, wherever the person is, you know, is is going to be one of these categories. And uh, if they're unsaved, you know, evangelism is the goal. If the self life is, if they don't, if they're not living out of the abiding life then it's, it's very tempting as a counselor to go right to, to, to uh, section 4 and help alleviate the symptoms. But Dr. Solomon keeps reminding us, are we really doing them a favor by reducing the stress over here with maybe how to handle their finances or how to take dominion over their three-year-old? Um, if God wants to use that to bring them to brokenness and experiencing the cross. So we need to keep reminding ourselves, this is a priority. Yes, freedom in Christ, then continued discipleship. Um, freedom in Christ I I'm, I'm was recalling that when I was uh, in Georgia uh, as a teenager with my cousin um, not a lot to do in McKaysville, Georgia um, so we would find these big June bugs and boys do terrible things you know, ladies don't listen and, and we get thread and we tie the thread to the leg of the June bug right? and then we'd have a kite you know, take off and we'd hold on to it you know, it was really fun to that June bug was a little kite and as I thought back about that, I thought, you know, that's really what a stronghold is. We got the power to fly, right? But if there's a false belief holding us back, like, whoa, you know. So when you cut that thread, then, you know, you got the freedom. So um, I believe that the truth does set us free, and we need truth applied to every area of our, of our heart and mind and life. Uh, the Lord gave me a little parable that uh, isn't finished yet, but you can add to it, embellish it. It's called the parable of the sailboat. Okay? So, imagine that your life is, is a sailboat that God made in the beginning. And then, unfortunately, because of a mutiny, uh, this boat sank. Adam and Eve sinned against God. We're in Adam. So, the boat sank. Bottom of the lake. Bottom of the ocean, I should say. Salvation is God in His mercy reaching down, raising that boat, and restoring the hull so it can float again, restoring us to the spiritual dimension where we can once again function as a boat. We have life. We have salvation. And so now, we've, we've had phase one. But then what tends to happen is, is we get saved. We're in the boat. Isn't this wonderful? We start rowing the boat. Thank you, Lord. I'm saved. I'm going to row the boat. Oh, this is great. And Ten years later, fifteen years later, our arms are aching. Oh, the Christian life is not what I expected. And we, we're absolutely at wit's end. And we think, oh, I'm going to give up. And then, in our despair, 
The Lord lifts up new power to to live the Christian life. the Christian life. It's not us, but it's Christ living through us, the power of the Holy Spirit through the cross applied to our life, giving us new power, new identity. We're not a rowboat, we're a sailboat. (laughs) So the identity is discovered. So phase two is experienced and we're just rejoicing that we can rest in in His grace. And then we think, this is it. We're going to just go to the ports of call with the Lord. It's going to be great, but you know, the boat is just not making the forward progress that we thought. I mean, the sail's up. You know, we're floating. Then over the side of the boat, we see a chain. We're dragging an anchor. No wonder. No wonder I'm not making the forward progress I want. So the Lord enables us to, to get that, that anchor where it belongs. That chain is no longer over the side. So now the power of the Holy Spirit in our life as a sailboat, we have the freedom to move ahead. And then with with Christ as our captain, we navigate and take dominion, chapter, uh, category four, to with Christ as our life, with freedom in Christ, to navigate all the areas of God's will for your life. Get rid of the barnacles. We gotta expand this and fine tune it, folks. And yes, Chuck. <laughs> I heard that too. Imagine that. Yeah, I think this. The diver went under the boat and they came up <laughs> laughing, right? The trailer's still underneath it. Oh, man. So that would definitely be a stronghold. So, uh, oh, that's for sure. Well, does that make sense? And I just pray that with, with that perspective, you're able to take this week knowing we're specializing here, but you know, we have the resources of freedom in Christ. And uh, Roy Hessian wrote a book called Forgotten Factors which talks about thorough repentance, and that's really Category 3. Um, Institute of Basic Life Principles has a booklet, How to Tear Down Strongholds of Bitterness. So, um, uh, Beth Moore has a book, Praying God's Word, which is all about applying the truth of God to various areas of your life. Um, we Just a, an encouragement story here at the end. Oh, there's a quiz here. Okay, back up. We'll see if we got this. Back up a page. Spiritual therapy. You can take a look at that chart. Uh, spiritual therapy is phase what? Phase two, right? See that uh, that little quiz? Euthetic counseling, admonishing counseling is what phase? That's over here. Practical discipleship. And then seven steps to freedom is what? That's category three. Evangelism explosion, for example, would be what? Number one, right? Different uh, different models. Which phase most directly relates to the counselee who has a negative image of God's attributes? And there, I'm talking about most. I mean, there there could be some overlap, but I'm suggesting number three. If we believe that God is a tyrant, then we need to have that corrected, or we're not going to, as you were saying, Tim, cast ourselves on His His life and grace. So I would suggest the first question, number three. We need uh, to tear down that false belief about God and correct it with the truth about who God is in Christ. The second example, what about the person who thinks they are saved by keeping the Ten Commandments? They think they're saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. What do they need? They haven't experienced the Gospel, have they? They're they're relying on their own righteousness to get saved. So we would bring them uh, to to uh, the gospel. How about the third one? 
How about the one who is frustrated in their attempts to live an abundant life? So that's what we're specializing in this week, right? Number two. How about the mature believer who does not know about the principles of handling their finances? I'm suggesting four for that. Assuming they know who they are in Christ, they're free, but they need help with that. How about the semi-religious one who can't remember if or when they receive Christ as Savior? Okay, number one, right? A lot of religious folks, as we heard yesterday, aren't born again, so number one. How about then the one who thinks that they are just a forgiven sinner trying to merit their Heavenly Father's acceptance? Number two, they need to discover the exchanged life, don't they? How about the uh, parent who's worn out because their two-year-old is running their home? <laughs> well, it could be God leading them to the end of themselves for two. If they know who they are in Christ and they're free, then it could be a phase four, either one of those. I'm suggesting number four, but it could be God's way to get them to number two. How about the woman who is, it should be B-I-T-T-E-R, bitter, about the harsh way her mother raised her? Probably three. Bitterness is one of the main strongholds in believers' lives. So uh, unforgiveness, the Bible says in Hebrews 12, don't let the root of bitterness uh, grow up and defile many. How about the depressed believer who cannot overcome his sense of inadequacy? Number two. You've done good. Okay, yes, sir. Luis Palau also emphasizes the exchange life and in that little brochure startling message we have his testimony there take as many of those as you want by the way uh, startling message uh, articles but isn't that encouraging that he came to the end of his own resources and Christ living through him is what is causing great harvest 